Welcome to the podcast Benzo Tired. I'm your host, Naftal Benesti, and I'm Dutch. Join me on my journey into the world of benzodiazepines, withdrawal, bind, and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode 42, Holly Hartman, and today it's July 3rd, 2023. On June 9, 2023, I spoke to Holly Hardman, a filmmaker and within the benzo community best known for her documentary, As Prescribed. In this episode, Holly shares her personal experience with benzodiazepines. Be advised, this episode may be perceived triggering for some listeners. Holly, welcome to Benzo Tired. Thank you so much for having me, Naftal. I've been looking forward to doing this podcast with you. Me too, me too. Now, the benzo community may know you from your film, As Prescribed, but in this episode, I really want to touch on your personal story considering benzodiazepines. So could you tell the audience when you got a benzodiazepine and what for? Yeah, you know, I I can honestly say that the story I tell most of the time is the time I was given clonazepam for... um, MECFS, and we we didn't call it that at the time. It was long ago. It was in the 90s. We called it chronic fatigue syndrome in the United States and myalgic encephalomyelitis in the UK and um, CIFIDS. I was part of an organization, the CIFIDS Association of America, and we were trying to spread awareness. Uh, But I can actually go back years earlier and I had been exposed to benzodiazepines, like even in college. I remember sometimes before tests, I just go, oh, I want to, I want to be able to sleep. And the um, the doctor at the health center would distribute Dalmain, for example. And I know you know that one. Yeah, and that was my benzo. Yeah, I remember taking it and thinking, wow, yeah, I'm sleeping, but I don't like the way it makes me feel the next day. So I said, well, I'll do this sometimes when I know, when I feel as though I need to sleep the night before. And I have, of course, learned since then that we don't really have to operate like that. We make mm-hmm. sleep more important than it is. Um, and uh, again, you know, took it probably maybe half a dozen times my senior year in college and then just didn't. Um, no information given about what a benzodiazepine was. But around that time, Karen Ann Quinlan, an American a young woman who was, she went, she took Valium and maybe there was alcohol too. And she went into a coma and oh. at that time, and I remember thinking, Oh God, this Valium, that's a bad drug. I never knew that I was taking something that was related my senior year. Mm-hmm. And um, she just was in a vegetative state for, I believe years. Um, so I always had this, funny feeling like this negative feeling about Valium being a drug I would never want to take. And then, um, oh, there was also, oh, I was the book dancing as fast as I can. There was a book that came out, I think it was dancing as fast as I can. And there was a lot of publicity about that. So in my mind, I wasn't going to be a benzodiazepine taker. I wouldn't have, you know, taken anything regularly along those lines. Mm-hmm. Well, at a certain point, I when I moved to New York City, I was having panic attacks. And um, I went to my new GP and said, you know, sometimes, you know, I was, I was doing, getting some commercial work at the time. And 
it's like, oh, I would go to these auditions and it's just, I don't even know why I'm doing it anymore because I can't stand having panic attacks. And he said, you know, everybody on Broadway takes, because he was, he treated a lot of actors. They all take beta blockers. And he said, um, he said, you don't want to do that all the time. That's not healthy. He said, but you know, there's Xanax is harmless. You know, you take it. Harmless. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, this is another time I was fortunate. So he gave me a prescription for Xanax. And he had actually said to me when he had, what's when we used to have those paper prescriptions. He said, as he handed it to me, I'll never forget. He said, you know, this is such a good drug that I would just like to go off to an island in the Pacific and lay back and take a Xanax. He said, that's a nice vacation. He, wow. He did that to me. Wow. And I, and I he was sort of half joking and I was like, ha ha ha. And he said, and these are really helping my wife. <laughs> oh, oh it's God. awful. And oh so I, I tried taking the Xanax as prescribed and I didn't do well with them. I hated the way it made me feel. And I was fortunate because, and I didn't know it was related to Valium. I just thought, well, he may love this, but I don't. Mm -hmm. So that was my experience. Oh, also, oh, I remember, oh, there was another incident since we're really going to dive into this. Um, at a certain point, you know, I had been a lifelong insomniac and every once in a while it would bother me. And I remember when I was in Los Angeles, living in Los Angeles, there was a period of time where my gynecologist, when I said, oh, I'm having trouble sleeping. And he did give me Dalmain. And then what happened is I got, I was lucky again, because that same doctor said at one point, he said, you know, I'm reading reports about Dalmain and it's not good. He said, uh, do you think you'd be happy enough to stop taking it? He said, he's, you know, you'd probably be dealing with insomnia again, but I think you'd be better off. And I was like, I said, I'll take the insomnia. I don't want to take something that's, you know, if you're reading that it's dangerous, I don't want to take it. So I didn't. So that was the end of that. Wow. Okay. Now, why don't we have more doctors like that? Right? Yeah, definitely. He was a wonderful doctor. And um, it's part of the reason I always felt safe talking to a gyne my gynecologist about <laughs> these matters. Right. Um, I'd, I'd had such a good one in Los Angeles. Right. So then jump to when this other doctor, this GP gave me Xanax and I hated it. So that was the end of that. And then, um, oh, probably the second or third year, second, maybe two years after I moved to New York, I it was when I started making short films. Um, I was just working, 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 exhausting myself. And um, for whatever reason, I developed MECFS. But you were tired. <laughs> you were tired chronically. Um, I was exhausted, but it wasn't like if you know much about chronic fatigue syndrome, I still can't help calling it that because I called it that for so many years or ME. It's the kind of it's less about exhaustion, about being tired. And it is a certain kind of exhaustion, extreme exhaustion from having this overactive um, everything um, systems, um, immune, nervous, everything's just going, 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 going. And that's how a doctor was able to convince me to take clonazepam because she said, this is going to slow your system down. There's um, 
a celebrated doctor in North Carolina, Dr. Paul Shaney, who came up with this protocol for MECFS. Um, and in great part, it uses clonazepam. Oh. And so that time, I was told to take two milligrams per day. And I was so sick with that that I was like, I'm going to do whatever my doctor says. So I didn't, that, I, I, I bought. Question. Were you aware at the time that you got prescribed this clonazepam that it was related to Dalmain and Valium? Absolutely not. And here's the funny thing. It had an insert. I read the insert and it was a little concerning. And I actually went to the doctor, the prescribing doctor. And I said, you know, I'm a little concerned because it's talking about these effects, like side effects, like that are not good. And she said, no, 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 don't worry about it. That's just what they put to protect themselves from lawsuits. You know, it's just a disclaimer of sorts, you know. She said, this is, and I was given the old, um, you know, this is, you can take this for the rest of your life. It's perfectly safe. Wow. How yeah. did the two milligrams of clonazepam make you feel when you first took it? Well, I was so sick with the, um, the MECFS that I didn't really notice. Um, I was really sick with it and it was, but as I was, so I never knew it took years for me to understand at a certain point I thought, Oh, because she also gave me Ambien, the Ambien. So you take two milligrams. This was a protocol, two milligrams of clonazepam and then an Ambien, I think a 15 milligram Ambien. And then at a certain point, because I connected you know, at a certain point, I realized, oh, this is helping me with, um, you know, sort of nervous issues. Like I had sometimes a fear of flying and it's like, oh, yeah, the clonazepam helps with that. The clonopin helps with that. Right. And then I got to the point where I thought, well, there's really no need to take an ambient. I mean, I'll sort of cut to the future, which is I did recover from chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, it had lots of things to recover from that. And, um, you know, it, so in the years after when I'd start having um, like what I realized now were tolerance issues, I was always told, well, this is just a relapse of chronic fatigue syndrome, recipients. And it took many years because I kept taking, not, at that point, I wasn't taking the Ambien. And I had decided, well, I, I'm feeling better. I'm not going to do the chronic fatigue syndrome protocol. I'll just kind of take the clonopin as needed. Okay, so that was your plan. And then what happens? Um, that's what I did for many years. And oh. I'd go weeks without taking it. My doctor, I was in Massachusetts at a certain point, And my, doc, I, my doctor was in New York, so she'd have to send these prescriptions that were in triplicate. And I remember when that happened, I said, why is this a controlled substance now? And she said, well, that's because in, in New York, you know, people do abuse um, these drugs. And so it, there is a criminal aspect to this. And that's why they've, <laughs> that was her excuse for why it was a controlled substance just for, for the abusers. And it's like, well, right. you don't abuse them. You don't even take them as much as I prescribe them. And so, but she would send these triplicate forms and I wouldn't even fill them, you know, half the time. Um, so wasn't, and I can look back now and go like, you think 
well, maybe that was worse. That <laughs> was, I was always in tolerance. And but thinking, you didn't know. You didn't know. You could have not known. Um, I had no idea. Yeah. I, I had no idea because I wasn't taking it every day. And that was where I was really not understanding it was like, how could something I wasn't taking every day be my issue? Because, and especially I was, you know, we do the chasing after the symptoms thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had all kinds of health issues, of course, basically now we know all, everything that falls under the umbrella of bind and um, doctors, I've, I've already said, they would say it's a relapse. And then it became things like metals toxicity, you know, testing for lead and mercury. Oh, yes, yes. That's what your issue is. And, you know, just and then finally, I had, um, you know, I just wasn't being diagnosed as any having anything um, exotic anymore. <laughs> you know, it was right. just and it what happened is I decided at one point, I just didn't want to be taking a medication I didn't truly understand anymore. I said, I don't even know why I'm taking it. Um, I did start to feel as though there's a kind of like this strange little dependency happening, even though I'm not taking it every day. But I still didn't connect it to these crazy symptoms I was experiencing. Um, so I just thought, yeah, why not? Just stop taking it. And so, how long were you on the clonazepam when oh you decided? Heaven. That would have been probably about, 17 years whoa I okay. recall. it was many years and um you know because it took me close to a decade to recover from mecfs uh, so just imagine through most of those years i was taking two milligrams per day it was only when i started believing because i was getting better um that i um was starting to take it less and i didn't feel anything I didn't feel anything that I would have connected to not taking it, if that makes any sense, or cutting down because I cut it, cut down, and then I didn't take it. So the, the way a lot of people do, you take it some days, you take it, you don't take it others, and you don't understand what the hell is going on. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so um, four days after I stopped, um, as I noted when I had taken my last one, and I had taken it for sleep. I thought I was going to lose my mind. I first couldn't, so what's going on with me? I think I better go to the emergency room. And then I was like, wait a minute. I haven't take the, taken the clonazepam, the clonopin in four days. So I Googled and I, I'm telling you enough to, I could hardly type. It was really difficult to even. I've been there. So I can imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I just put it, went to Wikipedia. No, no, I just Googled, I put in Google stopping clonopin and Wikipedia came up. And so much of the information that I had needed for years was there in a few clear paragraphs. Right. I couldn't believe it. And then I went to, so I ran into my bathroom. I opened up the medicine cabinet and I took a milligram of the blue clonopin. I always liked the color, you know, it was also like the pretty blue clonazepam pill. And it's like, oh my heavens. And um, because at one point, like the the half milligram, I believe was orange and the, you know, the milligram was blue. And I didn't really think, I should not be laughing. It's a horror show. I actually, I remember saying, you know, there's really not a difference between the half milligram and the milligram. And I like the color blue. 
So why not just do the one milligrams? Seriously. Right. Well, I think it's, you know, I can laugh about my almost dying and everything. So I think that's a good sign of healing and processing all of the trauma that is happening and all the information and kind of like the rug being pulled under you when you find out that you've been poisoned basically for so yeah. many years and you didn't know and everything all at once you did ask like and you, yes. you 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 were concerned but no one intervened and i i totally get it i totally get it yeah. so you take a milligram or half a milligram of this clonazepam milligram, you, yep. one milligram and then what what do you do um well it did calm me down immediately and it's like, okay, yeah, this is what it is. That's for sure. And so I spent the rest of the day into the evening um, going, I, for example, I found benzo.org UK and, um, or, and, or benzouk.org. And I found um, one of the really important things I found that day was an essay that Geraldine Burns had written. Um, she had a platform that was um, associated with a Yahoo group that she had organized, like, I think was the first of its kind that was like a real group of people and it went in, ended up going into the thousands. I mean, she, and so I saw this Geraldine Burns that was in Massachusetts. She had written about driving with children in the car and just panicking and not understanding what was going on and then realizing sort of after the fact that, oh, what was going on was the benzodiazepine that she mm -hmm. was in extreme tolerance. And that was one of the things I was experiencing. I had terrible problems driving um, and I never made the connection, never, because I thought the Klonopin still worked. So, but but just for the understanding of the audience, when you went online, did yeah. you find the Ashton Manual or wasn't it online at I the did, time? I did, I found it the first day. Oh, right, right, right. And, and did you reach I, out to, to Geraldine and her? No, Yahoo no, that, I was too sick. I was too sick right. to reach out to anybody in that way. I um, I found it on the benzo.org.uk site. Or is it benzo.org.uk? Benzo yeah, I think it's that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, And I downloaded it. I just had a digital copy that was available at the time. And I um, emailed my doctor right away. You know, I was pouring through the manual and going, this is this is what I need to do. I need to start doing this immediately. <clears throat> and I had a very, I had a very nice doctor. I mean, she didn't know about this, but she was cooperative. And I sent her the manual and I said, okay, um, thank you for prescribing me the clonopin, but I'm going to stop taking it. I'm going to stop. This is not a healthy medication. <clears throat> and she was, um, she listened and she agreed to help me taper off um, immediately, immediately. And so we got going. And this is the part I think so many of us realize with the Ashton manual um, that at least my doctor and I was counting on her because I could barely comprehend anything. I was sick. And um, the way she interpreted the Ashton Manual, she, she interpreted it very literally. And so she did originally have me start cutting too quickly. So we, you know, she, she just went, I think, to the tapering guide 
and not really reading about all the subtleties and what to look for and when to not be cutting and that sort of thing. Right. But so, I have a question, did because yeah. if you if you take the Ashton manual literally, she recommends that you cross over to Valium. Um nowadays we know she that's not always Yes, that was the plan originally. And um it was going to get going and then I was going to do the crossover. I never did do the crossover because at a certain point then then I found Benzo Buddies. And it was Benzo Buddies was a big breakthrough because then I'm I was finding other people who were having all these conversations about what was working for them and not. And I was oh I was I spent time on Benzo Buddies obsessively. And um wow, what a gift that was. Just so much information on that platform. Yeah. And so many people helping each other. But the thing I couldn't handle about Benzo Buddies was the negativity. So I didn't engage much uh because i just couldn't handle negativity at the time um once i was tapering i was just so fragile but it was finally it was on benzo buddies probably at what point when did i i did go to my doctor and say thank you but this is not working for me and, and it was kind of bad because she had said well i have another patient who i think would benefit from stopping a benzodiazepine so um, I'm going to see if she's willing. So she actually recommended to a patient that she taper off. But the other patient was able to do the quick, you know, like some people can follow the obvious on the Ashton manual and cro do the crossover and they're fine and they do it right. pretty quickly and they're great. That was my doctor's other patient. I was more complicated. Um, right, right. What were some of your symptoms when you were so sick? Oh, Godfrey, everything. It was just so everything about being alive wasn't working. And it was such a horrible existential feeling. It was so, it's a very frightening existential experience because there's no light. It's, um, I remember not being able to see colors properly and I knew it. And it was so disheartening and just like, how long am I going to have to live life like this? How, and um, pain. I think so many of us feel terrible pain. And I would have um, unexplainable, unexplained pain in different places. Um, um, oh, God. You know, depersonalization. I, I, you know, my depersonalization was not as bad as a lot of people. I had ex extreme derealization, though. And this sort of akathisia I have, and I feel so bad when people say, oh, that's not really akathisia. I didn't have the pacing kind. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, <laughs> May, you know, like be in my skin when I, for the kind of akathisia I had, where you're digging your fingernails into your skin, trying to force your, you're with your child and trying to force yourself not to move and and draw attention to yourself. I guess you used to have to go to like class presentations. Wait, and, you did all of that while you were in withdrawal? Yes. Oh my goodness. Wow. And, um, and I would just, I remember just having like marks in my thighs from digging in and Oh God, it is hard to relive this. I usually don't. I usually talk about it in terms of as prescribed and it's sort of lighter fare, you know? 
It's okay. Um, it's okay. Um, it is the darkest. Okay. Of course. I'm sorry, Naftal. I want to talk about this. I really do because it's so difficult what people are going through. And the more we talk about it and validate each other and care about each other, we we're, we are already making a difference and we're going to make bigger differences. We will. We will. And, and, and find we job. already are. You know, we can be thankful that things are already happening. But yes, yeah, so there was that and oh you know i have this other thing and some i cannot actually talk about some symptoms that were almost funny but um just the, the certain but most of it wasn't funny at all yeah i think for me when when people ask me because if you if you're not familiar with benzo withdrawal it's impossible to explain it to someone else but i felt like i was in an other parallel universe where it was just darkness hell torture yes, yes. torture definitely torture 24 7 torture absolutely and that's when i uh, and then and then there, you also have that feeling of needing to escape yourself like uh, which you know that sort of akathisia feeling did you have that too it's i so did long. yes yeah i did so we also are living like in this torturous parallel universe mm -hmm. that's just non-stop and haunts us in our you know i can't say in our dreams in our sort of almost like our our awake nightmares because we never really sleep. Yep. Yeah. And, um, oh, and crazy headaches. And of course the neurological problems, I remember I just couldn't read. And I remember like, I still had to like run my house and trying to write checks to pay bills and how many times I would have to write a check. And I wouldn't let anybody see me writing because, um, I had so much trouble. I was having, I had so much trouble doing anything and, and I just hiding it all from my daughter. I didn't want her to know. And, you know, I look back and realize something that was fortunate was that it was a period of time where she was so into gymnastics and she would just, and I had it set up so that, uh, because I could not do the drive, my driving issues, I would just have rolling panic attacks. I don't know if other people can relate to this, but I could only take right hand turns. And I, I would just, you know, taking a left hand turn was just beyond what I could do. And I still have driving issues. You know, you have a legacy or a lot of us do. And I still have a legacy of that, for example, because it went on for so long and for so long, I didn't understand what it was. Um, but my daughter was, um, Able, I was able to find babysitters to drive her to her gymnastics class. So she'd come on the home on the bus. I'd manage somehow. And, um, you know, in morning, I, I liked mornings. I could function for her in the morning and make her good oatmeal and just things she liked. I actually could still make good pancakes and, and, um, you know, her need, her obvious needs, you know, because she was going to school all day. Uh, most of the day it was so simple and then she was running off to gymnastics and she was happy because she loved gymnastics and then in the evenings you know they were kind of easy um you know we'd find a television program that we could watch together for example and mm -hmm. lots of amazing race and i had been working with on my last film um sort of the amazing race uh camera team um, helped with my last film. And so that was kind of, so we, we kept sort of, I was able to keep sort of fun things going. Like we would sort of pretend we were doing the amazing race together that we were right. going to do that someday. And, um, so how and long did your, did your taper last? Almost two years. Whoa. 
Okay. And when, once you got off, did you, um, get protracted, um, some issues afterwards? This is where it gets complicated. Um, I was doing fine. Actually, I'd say, and I also had to do a quick taper. It was much easier. I was taking bio, bioidentical hormones. And I know that the um, progesterone was affecting my GABA receptors to some degree. It wasn't much, so it wasn't a lot, but it was like that last thing, just like, okay, you know, you don't need this stuff. You know, this was the same doctor was like, hey, it just keeps you younger longer. And it's like, sure, I'll do that. Um, but then as I was reading more, I realized, no, this probably isn't a good idea. And I really didn't want to be taking anything. So, um, and those were just like patches that you put on your skin. Right. Um, so even with those, I was like, okay, I'm going to take this seriously. It's still a medication of sorts. So three weeks without any sort of incident, I guess I technically tapered off the bioidentical hormones. And then um, by the end of the year, I was feeling so good. I was ready. I mean, I maybe was feeling I 100% better, uh, certainly 90. But at that time, I remember thinking, hey, am I 100% better? Because one of the big things that happened um, was that I actually was able to get past my tinnitus by the end of my taper. You mean it disappeared or you? Yes. You just, oh, cool. Yes. Okay. But that's, that's it, great. It, it, but yeah, but then guess what happens? Um, and the tinnitus was, tinnitus was horrible. It was like clanging. It wasn't just like a buzz. It was clang, clang, clang. There's so many, oh, Naftal, you know, there's just like 50 to 100 symptoms that we all deal with. Those of us who really enter the state of bind. So, um, the end of the I went to a um, holiday party and um, the host had fireworks. It was quite fancy, you know. It was really I didn't know about that. I was feeling the holiday spirit, and but then I remember thinking, like, oh, okay, fireworks, great. I love fireworks, but how are we all going to watch them? And we were all herded out onto their small deck. I remember being on the deck and going, this is a lot of people. And I was like, I've got to readjust myself because I'm not feeling too secure just being on the edge of this deck. Right. I tried to get over to the steps to walk down and I caught my heel on, you know, on the step or the edge of the deck. And I went flying onto flagstone. Oh. Hit my head. Oh, no. There was blood, um, and they just kind of left me. It was it was like it's such a funny story. I'm not going to go into like the dynamics, the weird dynamics at the party, but um, with the host like not really doing anything for a while. I mean, just lying there, and finally somebody's boyfriend said, "You know, she probably really needs help, medical attention." Yeah, yeah. And there was a doctor there, and he took me to his hospital, which was not the closest one. It was a good hospital, and I was taken in immediately. So I had, um what should have been good care well anyway um it wasn't the best and you know i ended up they told me i was fine they did a um a ct scan or whatever and didn't do an mri which you know if you ever have an, a head injury like that make sure you get an mri um so the the head injury was kind of dismissed um 
but what I started noticing immediately was I had tinnitus again. Well, three weeks into, you know, after that accident, I went to the dentist and he looked, he's a dentist I'd been seeing for years, going to for years. And he looked at me and he said, you don't look right. I said, I don't feel right. I don't feel right. I'm told mm -hmm. I'm okay. I said, I had this, I fell, I had this accident. I had flagstone on my head. And he said, oh yeah, you you look as though you, you, you're dealing with a, an active head injury. So he made an appointment for me with a really great neurologist in New York City, got me in the next day. And of course, discovered that, you know, there was significant um, injury uh, and it hadn't been handled well by the other hospital, you know, because I was out in the sort of the, the woods, you know, I live in a and what exactly did they find in terms of injury? Well, this is why I'm going to, it was interesting. I talked to this neurologist about the background with the benzodiazepine. And he said, you know, you're going to have a tough time because you have this vulnerability from the benzodiazepine injury. And he did call it the injury. And he said, so, you know, I'm going to diagnose you with post-concussion syndrome. He said, but just to understand that it's a combination of the two that's this accident plus it's just so soon after you finished um tapering off the medication so that's that story so and 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 did you recover from that I, I, yes and no honestly i still deal with issues um the tinnitus has never gone away it's milder um, it, and then I ended up with Graves, which I think was benzodiazepine legacy, much more than the concussion. Uh, but there's an overlap. There's with all these neuro. I ended up more with neurological issues, and um, you know the whole HPA axis dysfunction element of this. Uh, I I rue the day that I fell off that deck because I was really on a healing trajectory, and I know people can fully heal um i never will and now you know add the lime in so you know i just but i don't want to make it sound as though i'm living with terrible regrets i'm not i'm really not well you made a film for the benzo harms community so that is something after all that you've been through so thank you for that mm -hmm. um in in terms of um we're not going to touch too much on the film um but it, mm -hmm. if you would want to because you've seen so much and you've done so much research by now and you've spoken yeah. to so many people um and you've been in withdrawal yourself and i always ask my guests at the end of the show like um what advice would you give people currently listening in withdrawal do uh, find support. And if you can't find it in your family um, or your close community, you know, geographic community, there, there's so much wonderful support online, Benzo Buddies, some of the Facebook groups. And, but if people start getting negative, keep your distance, move away. And um, uh, there are more people supporting more people going through bind than ever. And that's a good thing. Unfortunately, there are more people being diagnosed because we're realizing how widespread it is. Right. Um, and I'd also mention that for true healing, and this is maybe not everybody will agree with me on this, 
but I do think diet is key because our um, gastrointestinal systems take a real hit with, you know, benzodiazepines, they, it's one of their targets. Yep. And, um, there are certain dietary changes that I think are key to healing. And maybe a rule of thumb is gluten-free, dairy-free, processed sugar-free. I might be forgetting one other. I feel like those. there's the, the, there's the. Maybe red meat or something. Maybe. What, I don't know. what did you say? Red meat, perhaps. No, no. Because as a matter of fact, if it's grass fed, stay away from regular, just your regular supermarket um, meats. But if you can get grass fed, different story, because some people do very well on a paleo diet or the GAPS diet, ketogenic diet. Um, so not everybody is the same. Um, I do better with some of those, um, either wild fish or grass fed protein, um, meat, beef and lamb. Mm -hmm. I don't, um, I don't eat it a lot, but I do find sometimes it, it, it can be helpful. Um, yeah. Um, the getting rid of sugar, that's huge. Um, as a matter of fact, for a while, some people shouldn't even, should really not be eating a lot of fruit. I think sometimes maybe that's why the ketogenic diet works so well for people because there are, um, fruit limitations. Uh, but yeah, look at diet and find one of those, one of these recommended diets that works for you because we are all different. And, um, like for example, the whole controversy about supplements, I was able to take supplements through my throughout my entire taper, there are so many people who can't go near a supplement. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, for example, for a while in my taper, magnesium just set me off terribly. And that it is at a certain point in my taper toward the end, I start, I tried magnesium again and it was very helpful again. So it's not just that we're all different. We're all changing as even within our own systems, our systems, our, Definitely. And that's why it's yeah. so complicated. And that's why we yeah. can't really give like, there's no magic bullet to any of this. And right. everyone is so different. And everyone has their own kind of timeline. Um, I'm super kindled, you know, so everyone has their own I'm kind so of like, oh, so it's fine. I'm alive. I'm sleeping. I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing yeah, well. That helps a lot, doesn't it? Oh, you know, and another thing, you know, I don't know. I think this is another one of those um issues that people aren't going to necessarily agree on but i i like the idea that there are um researchers and who are looking for um other methods to help people um through the difficult another medication for example that might actually be safe to take while people are tapering because i know for example trazodone Right. helped me at, at a certain point I, I said to my doctor i'm not going to make it i am not going to make it if i don't have some sort of reprieve i said I, and so i took trazodone for three weeks it helped me and then i have never taken it again never been tempted to um but it there is a scientist who's at the university of pittsburgh that i spoke to not so long ago and she understands how difficult the withdrawal experience is for people and she and her team are trying to 
find something that could help people through these difficulties just to ease ease the torture a little bit. And I, I think that's a good thing. And who knows, maybe there's no pharmaceutical that will ever help us. But if there is, I think this group has good intentions and good science and let's see what happens. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. So for the audience, Holly and I uh, decided to do a second episode somewhere in the future where we really touch on as prescribed the film. Um, before I let you go, Holly, a, a question, um, where can people find you, your film? Maybe people can donate something uh, or pitch in or do anything. Is Are there any websites you would want to say? Sure. Well, our website is asprescribedfilm.com. And um, we're going to be migrating to another platform soon enough. But we'll, so maybe there will be part of a day when it's not operational, but it is now. And, you know, we're gathering funds for our in impact campaign. And um, most of what we're going to be trying to secure going to foundations and people who really have the means. But um, sometimes those donations that come in help us with things like, for example, the paying somebody to help me with the website, you know, these ongoing things that we always have. Um, so yeah, I, it's tax deductible. And for those who care, and you can do it through the asprescribedfilm.com website. And we have two fiscal sponsors, um, Women Make Movies, they're based in New York, and the Center for Independent Documentary, which is based in Massachusetts. And they support films from all documentaries from all over and they're both wonderful or wonderful organizations and um j just stay in touch you know just on social media i wish i could be more active that's a goal that i can actually spend a little more time having fun on social media or um, just connecting with people on social media just sort of that feel good stuff yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to add all the links that I can find um, in the podcast description episode so people will be able to click and find you when they listen to our episode. Thank, Thank you so you. much for making the time and sharing your personal story with us. Definitely. Thank you so much, Naftal. Thank you. you and I'll speak to you soon. Wonder, I love your podcast. <laughs> thanks. Thank thanks. You. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>